Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Paul Rykoff about President Trump's recently reported attacks on fallen soldiers in the military, the current morale of our armed forces, and how we can support those in our personal circles who have served or are serving in the military through policy advocacy and in our day-to-day interactions. Since returning from a combat tour in Iraq in 2004, Paul Rykoff has emerged as one of the most important, unique, and dynamic political and social leaders in America. He is a nationally recognized authority on politics, veterans' affairs, leadership, war, the military, media, and mental health, who rose to prominence as the respected founder of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, IAVA, the nonpartisan advocacy organization for a new generation of veterans, Paul is somebody I've uh, known and respected for a long time, and I'm very glad to have you on with us today, my brother. It's great to be with you, my friend. I love, I told you when we were dialing in, I love hearing your voice. I think it's a soothing, calming, empowering, just nice voice. You have such a great voice. If there was ever a voice for podcasting, Jim, it's yours, man. Well, we're looking for your voice today, my friend. So let me ask you first, just how is your spirit these days? I think it's a little battered, Jim, to be honest with you, because we've been friends a long time. And I know the folks who listen to your show are going to be open to a real conversation. I try to keep it real. I think my spirit kind of feels like a running back. Um, I said battered, not beaten or broken. Right. We're kind of I'm kind of banged around a little bit. And I think like I'm a I like to envision my spirit as a, a Jim Brown type running back where, you know, you get banged a little bit, but you're a pinball. You don't go down. You just kind of spin or make a cut move for the football fans out there. Um, and I'm trying to keep moving forward and, and trying to keep my spirit kind of like a rhinoceros of a running back through whatever the chaos is around me. That's kind of been my, uh, my MO in life. But I think it's especially important now to be real and recognize I've got good days and bad days. Um, but when I'm that running back, you know, the ball I'm carrying in my hand through that chaos is my two little boys. I got a five-year-old and a one-year-old and my wife and a lot of other folks around me that I care about that are, you know, at risk and facing health issues and I'm doing the work. So, um, you know, I've been talking to a friend, Jim, and I think you can relate to this. It's a little bit unique, the position I'm in because I'm in the pandemic and I'm experiencing the pandemic and I'm also covering the pandemic. As, as a person in the media and the work I do with Righteous Media, but I'm also trying to positively influence the pandemic. I'm trying to, to make change and, and make it better for people. So it's a unique perspective to have. Uh, it's uniquely challenging, to be real, uh, especially for my family when, you know, I just left my kids 9 a.m. Zoom teacher call, you know, class, and then run down in the basement in the garage and try to get some Wi-Fi up. So we're all trying to make it work. You know, we're all stitching it together. Um, but I'm keeping my eyes on the prize and moving forward and recognizing there'll be better days ahead. 
Um, but also trying to be honest with people about the fact that, you know, because I'm in the media, because I'm out in public doesn't mean I don't have bad days too. And that's part of what I've learned over the, you know, couple of decades of activism and working alongside people like you is, you know, we got to be real with each other and, and we got to work together because this is a, you know, a team game more than anything we've ever experienced. I like battered and not broken. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to that. And moving forward in the cut moves, sometimes we're looking for what are those next moves and cut moves. And you're good at that. So appreciate your sharing personally. I got two boys too, as you know, and uh, years are one and five. Uh, it gets better and better. <laughs> so those the, that is the ball you're carrying. That's for sure. So as you know very well, it was recently reported in the Atlantic that Trump called veterans losers and suckers. I still can't get over that. But as an advocate for veterans and a veteran yourself, what do you make of this? When I heard this news, Paul, I thought of you, and I wondered what you were feeling about this news. This is who Donald Trump is. That's what I was thinking, Jim. And I wasn't surprised. Uh, I wasn't shocked. Um, the outrage that I do feel now is more about the fact that he's still president and we as a nation and our political leadership have failed to remove him. Um, this is who he is. He is a horrible person. And I think I can say that to you and your audience in a way that, that, that probably resonates more than in other places. He's a guy that I don't want my kid to watch on TV because he's such a terrible role model. He, he displays bad behavior. If anything, he's consistently an example of, of what not to be. I look for lessons from my boys. And, you know, uh, when, when I look at him, I say, you know, he's the kid in the class that the teacher says, don't be like Johnny, right? Don't be like Donnie, right? Don't be like this guy. And I'm trying to find ways to use this moment constructively, uh, especially with my boys. When my son thinks about Donald Trump and he, you know, in this environment, he's old enough, he's five, he, he thinks about him and sees him pretty often. Uh, he, he says to me, I said, what do you think? And he says, he's like the Grinch. And to him, Donald Trump is like the Grinch. He's a mean person. He's someone who doesn't care about others. He's someone who's selfish. Uh, he's someone who's, who, who's not caring about everyone else. And, and a five-year-old can break it down in a way that I think sometimes the adults have started to normalize. So this is who he is, Jim. He's a terrible person. Um, he is a bad role model. He says things and does things that are terribly damaging to others. He is a political suicide bomber. He will go into a situation to achieve what he wants and blow up everything along the way without regard to the, the cost around him. So that's been consistent. Uh, so when he calls troops losers uh, and, and suckers, or he calls John McCain a loser, or he attacks his own generals, or there, there are bigger problems actually that outrage me more, Jim, which is that he pardons war criminals. Right. Those are the policy issues that are much more dangerous than just calling us names. Right. Call us names. You know, we can deal with that. But to pardon war criminals, to say the very values that we uphold and the laws that we abide by don't matter anymore. Those are much deeper, in my view, not to mention the national security weaknesses he's enabled on everything from the pandemic to removing troops from Germany that only benefit Russia, to removing Pentagon funds and sending them down to his wall. Consistently, time and time again, he's weakened our national security. And I use the hashtag, our enemies are celebrating. Every day Donald Trump is in power, is our commander in chief. He makes us weaker. He divides us. And beyond our self-interest here in the United States, where we say, boy, he divides us. Doesn't that suck? Putin loves it. 
Kim Jong-un loves it. Our enemies love it. The Chinese love it. They love seeing America ripped apart and seeing our commander in chief calling his own military suckers and losers because he has so little regard for them or for anyone. So the, the, the news here, Jim, is he doesn't respect anybody or anything to include the military. The military is no different than everyone else. And we saw that with this story. So when you talk about Trump is a bad person, I think you get to the heart of things. All this repeated talk of unprecedented behavior and breaking protocols and people don't get to the core of this, which he's just a very bad person. What made him that way? I have no idea. The family makes some sense in terms of his own, but he just acts like a bad person all the time. And you have said, I want you to elaborate on what you just said. You said that Trump has been weakening our national security. You said over and over again. Let's be specific about you, what you mean by that. Do you think he wants to change the role of the military itself? Do you think he wants to make the military part of his, uh, his, his own fighting force? What do you think four more years, I guess, of Donald Trump would mean uh, to our military, our troops, and the veterans? Four more years are catastrophic. Um, so I'll just start by saying that. When I say he's a, he's a bad person, he has no integrity. He has no honor. He has no respect. And when you don't have those core values, then you are compromised uh, ethically. And when you are compromised ethically, the foundation is broken and everything you build on it is broken. So everything he does is broken because he's broken. He's flawed. He's compromised. So if you think about that in, in military terms, uh, you can't drive a tank with no with no tracks. You, you can't fire a weapon with no ammunition. I mean, the, the core of who he is uh, has weakened our national security and the fabric of our nation. And, and I guess let me give you two quick examples. OK, one of the most dangerous things he's done is turn the American military on its own people. And there are a lot of examples you hear, you hear on, on cable news about what he's doing to weaken our national security. But on a very basic level, he turned federal troops and National Guard soldiers against Americans who are peacefully protesting. OK, when he wanted to do his little stunt in Washington and clear out peaceful protesters with tear gas, he asked American service members to do it. In my view, that's more dangerous to our democracy, to our military, to our troops than sending us to Vietnam than sending us to Iraq like I was sent, right? To stand up and, and say, I'm going to ask you, young 19-year-old private, to hold a weapon and stand in front of a mother who is peacefully protesting her government, and not even her government, but her president, right? That, I think, cuts to the core of how he is weakening uh, our national security. And then on a very basic level, there's the pandemic. You know, Osama bin Laden would love to have killed 200,000 Americans. Would have loved it. Right. To have people uh, have to stay inside and to have people change their ways and to have people turn against each other with skepticism. You know, his inability to fight the most dangerous enemy we faced, the coronavirus, is, is the best example of how we're weakened. We are softened up. Right. Our military has been occupied. Our politics are marred. Our health systems are overwhelmed. Our economy is shattered. Osama bin Laden would have loved to have had this scenario. And and Trump didn't cause the coronavirus. But his inadequate and, and catastrophically bad response and his continuing bungling of the response has compromised our national security in ways I don't think we can even fathom yet. Uh, and, and maybe one last point I'll add, just the morale, 
right? A fighting force has to have morale that's strong, has to feel united. If you go into a football game or into a war or, or into a tough time with your family, you got to stick together. You got to have confidence in each other and in your leadership. And, and you know, a, a house divided will easily fall. And we're so divided right now that we are ready to be compromised in new ways we haven't even thought of yet. So his, his continued demoralization of the country and the exacerbation of problems. He makes everything worse. That is an enemy's night, uh, enemy's dream uh, and a national security nightmare. I hope that people like General McMasters, who was recently on 60 Minutes, will speak out more forcefully. I think General Kelly, General Mattis, other military folks and prior military folks who've been next to him who know about honor, integrity, and values need to speak out more forcefully right now. They're not doing it, Jim. They've disappointed me terribly, and I think they've disappointed our country terribly. They must speak out about not just the general division of what's happening. They got to put a point on it. McMaster's kept, talk, kept talking on 60 Minutes about the division and how our politics put a point on it. The leader is responsible. Trump is responsible. Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes did not ask McMaster's, Jim, who are you voting for? Because you got to make a choice, right? What church are you going to go to? What preacher are you going to listen to? What God are you going to follow? You know, what, what decisions are you going to make? And, and, and I think the media has let a lot of these folks off the hook and turning to them and saying, OK, we got it. You think it's bad out there. But whose fault is it? Who is responsible here? Who can fix it? So I want to hear people answer those tough questions. And I hope the American people will listen closely to the answers um, because it's not a time to be cute. It's not a time to keep any powder dry. The stakes couldn't possibly be any higher. So the stunt that you referred to uh, across from the White House, uh, across Lafayette Park, where he where he dispersed, uh, violently dispersed, peaceful, as you say, demonstrators. Then he went to St. John's Episcopal Church, and then he held his Bible. I'm not sure it was his Bible. He said it wasn't his. I'm not sure he has one. He held the Bible upside down, which was, to me, very, very symbolic. Held the Bible upside down. He's always been a, a petty dictator in his whole life, wherever he's been. Now he's President of the United States. So how do you think he might want to change that incident, that stunt, as you put it so well? Does that indicate how he'd like to change the role of the military, a military that supports literally a petty dictator? Absolutely. I mean, if you go back to the idea that he respects nothing and no one, that includes religion, that includes the Bible, that includes common decency, anything that we hold true, we hold with regard, he doesn't. So I think that that's an interesting example to look at, because in that same episode, he is using the military and religion for the same outcome for his own. He's using them as props. He's holding the Bible upside down. He's holding the military upside down. He's holding our values upside down. That's that's him. And, And there's a core part of this that I think is often overlooked, Jim. It's not just that he's bad and he's reckless and and he's mean. He's undisciplined. He's so undisciplined. He probably didn't mean to put the Bible upside down, but he did it right. He probably didn't mean to call someone losers and, 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 and suckers, but, but he said it. He's so undisciplined. And that is, is maybe as a military veteran, what, what concerns me the most is he can be baited. He can be compromised. He can be trapped. He can be ambushed because he's so undisciplined. He can't control himself, but he does know populism. And he knows how to manipulate populism in a very powerful way. He did it on the campaign. He did it similarly with religion and with the troops. We are props to him. He holds us up when he needs them. He, he, he radically 
uh, hijacks them. One of my friends who, who had some time in the clergy and went in the military, Dave Chastine, once said that if America were a religion, the military would be the clergy. We are supposed to be the protectors of what it means to be American. We are the ones who sacrifice it all. We are, especially in this all-volunteer uh, construct, Jim, we, we are supposed to be the ones who understand the Constitution and no matter what, swear to uphold and defend it. We come from all places, right? We're supposed to be the samurai, the Highlanders, the keeper of the flame, right? And if he comes after us, that shows you that he's hitting maybe the last guardrail of our democracy. Religion has always been politicized to some extent in this country, probably. The military has as well, but never like this. When he, when he makes a statement that day in, in Lafayette Park, he had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, standing next to him in uniform, and he had the Secretary of Defense on his flank. They are both uh, politically very powerful symbols. And he said to the peaceful protesters, I'm coming in to crush you. And look who I have with me. I have my military. And they're not his military, but in that moment, he made it look like they were. And, and as we divide along racial lines, you know, in, in a great scenario, we're the clergy. In, in the most fearful scenario for many Americans, the military is, is the ground force in Trump's race war. And you see many white soldiers, many white cops, uh, many folks in uniform that are overly militarized and, and look intimidating, standing on his flank, rolling in. And that is the danger, in my view. We are supposed to be like the police. We're supposed to be the protectors. And if that's hijacked, that is a very dangerous road to go down. And it's very hard to unwind. So that's why I continue to you know, go back to the football analogy. I'm throwing every flag I can, Jim, because sometimes I'm watching the game in a way that I don't think other folks are. I want to kind of be the Tony Romo of, of this political space and say, hey, here's what you really need to look for. Because these are the things he does from, from the Lafayette Park incident to attacking uh, Mr. Khan and the Khan family, the Gold Star families, to attacking John McCain, to attacking Colonel Vindman, right? He sent a message. If you're in uniform, if you do the right thing, you will be crushed. I will crush you. I will try to diminish you. And that is maybe the most consistent and damaging message and the one we must push back on because I do think it cuts to the core of who he is, but also cuts to the core of who America is. And I think it's most damaging to him. That's why he freaked out so much about the suckers and losers thing. He knew it was hurting him politically. He knew it was damaging him in red states. He knew it was hurting him in Pennsylvania and Texas and Florida, places he needs to win. And the Democrats would be smart to stay on it. They've already moved on too fast, in my opinion, Jim. But I think it's perhaps the most winning issue they've got going into November. So I want our listeners to hear this language of a president who uses everything as props, props for his own power. He's using us all as props. Um, and, and, and that's really something that has damaged us. So the question, I guess, is how do you think if there is a new president, a next president, how could that be repaired? What's how to repair the damage that Trump has done to our national security, to our standing in the world and to the military itself and to our democracy, as you're putting it, how to repair that damage? Because he's damaged us. We got to start with those same values that he doesn't uphold. And I think it starts with electing someone who is good, someone who we can trust. I mean, there, there's, this, you know, we say this in the military a lot. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Joe Biden's not perfect, but he's good. And, and I'll take good right now over perfect. I'll take good right now over bad. And it is a choice. And I'm an independent. 
for those of you folks who are listening, maybe they've never heard me before, don't know my work. I'm politically independent. Many conversations you and I have been in, Jim, with fellow activists and, and social movement leaders, I'm kind of the only independent in the room or, or definitely more conservative than many um, politically. But I don't have a political party. I'm kind of a political jump ball. And I think over 40 percent of Americans are that way now. That's why I started my media company, Righteous Media, because I want to create voices and elevate voices that aren't politically affiliated. And that's the point here is that we, too, understand that Trump is not the future. Trump is the past. Trump is dangerous. Trump is, in many ways, the most existential threat we've ever seen to our democracy. And Joe Biden is not many people's first pick, but it's either him or devastation. It's Biden or terrible calamity. It's Biden or an endangered national security. It's Biden or the exacerbation of the pandemic. So, you know, I've been around Biden uh, on the military issues in particular. He is strong and he cares. His son, Bo Biden, served in Iraq. He and Dr. Biden know what it's like to send a child to war. Uh, and he's talked openly in, in select spaces about the fact that he believes Joe, that Bo Biden's cancer was caused by toxin exposures and burn pits in Iraq. He thinks that Bo got cancer because of his service in Iraq. And I think that's, that's a powerful experience and a humbling experience. He understands our community, he understands our national defense, and he understands that you know it's more necessary for the president to be good in issues of war than maybe anywhere, anywhere else. When people think, hey, can it get worse with Trump? Just remember one thing, Jim. Remember one thing, this bad person, this terrible person who makes things worse every single day has control of our nukes. It can get worse. He has the nukes. This is where I shake people and say, wake up. Like, you may be okay with some things he does. Are you okay really with his finger on the nukes, this undisciplined person, right? Are you really okay with him having control of nukes? Because he does and they can get worse. And I would much rather have Joe Biden's finger on that trigger than Donald Trump's. So a lot of people wonder, um, Paul, you've been very clear, very, 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 as you always are, very clear about what you're feeling, what you think, what you think this man is, his lack of discipline, his lack of, of value and virtue. Uh, what, are, what are veterans thinking? You talk to many more veterans than most of us do all the time, every day. Veterans and people active in the military, what are they thinking about all this right now? They're not all thinking the same thing. I know that. But what what do you hear? What do you feel? How are active military people and veterans who who you spend your, your life uh, supporting and lifting up, what are they feeling about this right now? You know, Jim, I, I'm, I'm so glad I'm having this conversation with you because veterans in the military are not a monolith in the same way people of faith are not, right? It's so so diverse and so disparate. There are roughly 20 million veterans in America. Uh, they come from all backgrounds and many generations. The mil active duty military is very diverse politically, racially, now more diverse in gender and LGBTQ issues. So they're very, very diverse. They're not a monolith. But I think there's a commonality that I see that's most important, which is they recognize that he is mayhem. I call him on my podcast every week, President Mayhem. And the mayhem, the lack of forward planning, the lack of discipline, the lack of clarity, the lack of teamwork is contrary to what makes the military run well. So it's a very, very tough thing to wake up and be in the 82nd Airborne and not know what country you might be invading tomorrow or whether you might be invading your own country. Right. They might drop you. you use the 82nd Airborne as an example. Members of the 82nd Airborne uh, were recently yanked out of uh, Iraq, some of them. 
some were probably in Germany. They were yanked out of there. Some were sent down to Washington. In one period during the Lafayette Park incident, I think they were stood up and stood down four times. So you're a young paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne, and you don't know if you're going to Iraq. You don't know if you're going to Syria. You don't know if you're going to Washington, D.C. for a president who may want you to crack skulls. Like, that's what we're putting on these young men and women. And they know. They know that that's not good for our national security. So I do think it transcends party. There's always going to be a loyal base of of Republican voters in the military that will go with whoever the candidate is in the same way they will with Democrats. I think in the last generation, especially some of the Republican support in in uh, in, in the officer corps especially has calcified. And a lot of that was because, quite frankly, the Republicans worked harder for military votes. And they said all the time, we're strong on the military. And if you say something enough, people believe it. And if the Democrats say we're strong on the military for 30 years and put some veterans out in front, maybe that'll change. But I think they're just they're they're a bit they're, they're definitely concerned. They're also demoralized. Uh, they see the president coming after people like General Mattis, who, you know, this is fun to talk to you about. But many people in the Marine Corps call him St. Mattis. I mean, he has there are shrines to Mattis in the Marine Corps because he's so revered. And now, you know, uh, Trump is attacking him and General Kelly, who's a gold star father himself. So they feel like they can't trust this guy. Uh, and and they're just concerned about the chaos that he creates. So um, I, I think that, that they're paying attention. They vote. Our, our members at IAVA used to vote at over 95, 98 percent. They're very engaged. They're very independent. And, and I think they can move elections, especially in swing states. Like we dropped into Iraq, Syria or Lafayette Park. Uh, on your website, it says your personal mantra is the phrase adapt, improvise, and overcome. Adapt, improvise, and overcome. What are those words meant for you personally, and what do they mean now uh, where a country country needs to go from here? You know, I I learned that in the Army at some point, and um, I've kind of taken it with me through uh, my time as a social entrepreneur, uh, my time as a business owner, my time as a dad, maybe most of all, you know, my kid started class today and his school is closed and he's going into kindergarten and, uh, the teacher's holding up a book and trying to read them a book, but the Wi-Fi connection sucks so much. He turns to me and goes, dad, I can't see the book. And I said, buddy, we just got to make it work. We got to figure it out. We got to try to make the most of it. Let's see what color is the book. Can we can we pick up another book? Can we just make the most of this situation? We're going to have to figure it out, right, Rye? Like his, his name is Ryder. So I'm like, look, buddy, there are going to be stumbles. There are going to be challenges. You got to figure out a way around them. We got to work together and we got to improvise, adapt and overcome. And a lot of it's about positive attitude. I don't want to sound like, you know, Tony Robbins or somebody here, but but I do think it's important to control your own fate and to have a positive attitude. And we wake up every day and with our family, we say today's going to be a great day. We're going to make it a great day. We're going to have a positive attitude. We're going to make the most of this situation because if you get down and you get frustrated, it can snowball, especially in a pandemic when you're dealing with with a lot of challenges. You got to try to break it apart, um, remain positive, stick together. Family and America, you know, they're the ultimate team game. And and I think that that mantra has helped me and my teams, um, you know, adapt, improvise and overcome. That's what we're going to need to do going forward. And I can level with your audience because I know they're, they're people who are informed and care deeply. This is a battle that will last for a long time. No matter what happens in November, we got to strap in and real leaders need to be honest with us about that. It's going to be hard no matter who wins. 
and it's going to be hard for a while. So we're going to have to strap in and stick together, take care of each other. And that is what every generation in this country has done and what we can do and lead not just this country forward, but the world forward. We can be the leader for the world in the way we were in the past, but it's going to be a hard road. And we're going to have to dig deep to get forward. And we're going to need leaders like you, Jim, that bring positivity and resources and community and hope um, because it's going to be up and down. But we can get there. What we've learned from these twin pandemics of, of uh, the virus and, and, and racial, systemic racial injustice is are not going to be overcome by a Biden or a vaccine. It won't be that simple or easy. So I like the adapt, improvise, and overcome. The general public is learning more and more about the mental health consequences of military service. The terrible toxins, which you mentioned already, that soldiers were exposed to in Iraq, the inadequate care that our country gives to veterans. You have brought awareness and advocacy to those issues. You focused on those mental health consequences. How can the average person create change around those issues? What a, what a great question, Jim. Uh, I mean, my immediate response is be the change you seek. Start with yourself. I think we, we had a real challenge in this, in this kind of work in the veterans and mental health space for many years because people didn't understand. Less than one half of 1% of the country had served in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were a small population um, that kept going over and over again. And, and most folks couldn't relate to our experiences. It felt foreign. It felt like a reality TV show. So we had to really help communicate to people what it was like to face trauma, to face adversity, to face sacrifice and, and have something like post-traumatic stress disorder. I went to Israel once and I talked to a mental health provider and I said, so, you know, how do you guys deal with, with PTSD over here? And he looked at me and goes, everybody over here has PTSD. Everybody in Israel knows what it's like to fear a rocket landing on their head. We don't have to try very hard to communicate because everybody understands the threat. So I share that because now in the pandemic, I think everybody understands a little differently. You know, everybody understands what it's like to, to be isolated. Everybody understands what it's like to make sacrifices. Everybody understands what it's like to live in, in a very dynamic environment, um, facing many conditions you can't control. And, and for many of us who've been in combat, this is what combat feels like. Uh, you don't know when it's going to be over. You don't know how it's going to go. And you got to dig deep and, and, you know, adapt, improvise and overcome sometimes means getting used to wearing a mask. Right. A year ago, if you would have told me that five year olds would have been fine with wearing masks and they would have been on playgrounds and going to school. And I would have said, that's crazy. I can't get my five year old to wear a hat. Right. But like to get him to wear a mask, um, he, he's doing it and they're doing it and we're doing it. Um, and I think we could, we're doing it in part because we all understand the stakes, even though the president doesn't and, and doesn't communicate it effectively. So I think the mental health toll has been severe. We lose 20 veterans a day to suicide. That was before the pandemic. Uh, I am very concerned about the landscape going forward as every issue is compounded, uh, most of all the isolation. But I also think it's a time for veterans to shine. We can help others through this. We can be a source of stability and strength and integrity. And we're seeing that on everything from hurricane response to schools. Uh, they're stepping up to help. And I think this can be you know, the call of our generation, not just for veterans, but for everyone. So I am, I am concerned and I am going to continue to advocate on mental health. But I'm also a bit encouraged, ironically, because everybody gets it now. And maybe that'll help us prioritize mental health care, resources, awareness, and candor. 
talking about mental health in an open way like we are right now, Jim, I think is maybe the most important first step. So for folks who want to make change, you know, start with yourself. What are you doing to take care of yourself and your family? And I think if you go down that road of ensuring your mental health is strong in the same way you would your physical health, then you're in a position to be educated and informed to help others. I think we often live with this illusion of success that life is uh, without trauma. And that certainly isn't true for veterans. It isn't true for people of color, parents of color all over this country, the trauma they feel every day about their kids, their fears for what happens to their kids. So how to deal with trauma, how to, how to overcome trauma, how to face it, acknowledge it, how to be empathetic toward the trauma that others feel. Uh, and maybe the, maybe this pandemic is teaching us more about how to understand, see, acknowledge, uh, have compassion for and live with trauma to go deeper, as you say. And that is for me, a very deep spiritual question as well as a cultural and political one. Um, you're the grandson of immigrants and the son and grandson of veterans. So immigrants, veterans, <laughs> how does your own life story shape what you believe America can and should be going forward as, as, uh, as inheriting both that immigrant and veteran status? Well, well, you know, I'm, I'm grateful every day that, that I was raised by immigrants and both my grandparents were illegal, right? But it wasn't even something that anyone threw around back then. I mean, my, my grandfather was kind of like uh, Jack from Titanic. Like he rode on the ships and worked on the ships going back and forth from Europe. And one day he just got off and stayed here with a buddy. Um, he spoke no English, came from Germany uh, and, you know, tried to make a life for himself. Um, met my grandmother when they were working in a greasy spoon during the depression. He was a cook. She was a waitress. Um, and then he ended up, uh, being drafted going to world war two for three years in the South Pacific, like pretty much everybody in the neighborhood. And then he came home and worked at the post office for 30 years. Um, and the post office is now under attack. So all these things that my grandfather and my grandmother and others in my family experienced and were is now under attack, right? He's attacking immigrants, he's attacking foreigners, he's attacking people who don't speak the language, people who join the military, uh, people who are working people in the restaurant industry, um, you know, people who work at the post office. He's like, he's attacking the post office. He attacks everything that's sacred. So I'm glad that I've been steeped in those experiences because what they taught me was connectivity, humility. Uh, my grandfather always taught me to pay attention just to be aware of what's going on around you because it matters. Uh, he also worked at, at, the, at the polling station at a local firehouse. My grandfather and grandmother quietly, humbly just worked there every year. It's what they did. They didn't you know, post about it on Facebook. They just did it. Um, so I think their example was most important to me and I didn't realize it until many years later. Um, but that's, you know, that's an American story. It's one American story. I think what it also taught me is to appreciate every American story and to recognize that we are interconnected um, now more than ever. But I do think people who have a connection to an immigrant past uh, think about it a little bit differently. Uh, maybe it feels a bit more personal or maybe it's been a, been more threatened. Um, but, you know, going back to the trauma issue, um, you know, they, they help me understand that, that trauma is real. Trauma is something that almost everybody experiences at some point in their life, but it can be overcome. Uh, it can be faced. And, you know, America is still a place where heroic people live and heroic people come despite our leadership. And and that guides me going forward. I, my, I never would have thought my grandfather never would have thought, Jim, when he when he got off a ship coming into this country, 
And my grandmother came through Ellis Island. Ellis Island is, uh, I don't know, a mile or two away from ground zero, uh, where the World Trade Center was, where I was on 9-11, where many of us were on 9-11. And then uh, about 10 years later, I, ha- I had an apartment there. I have an apartment there with my family and I raised my kids, you know, about a mile away from Ellis Island and a mile away from ground zero. And it all kind of came together. And now, you know, it's ground zero for the pandemic. So every generation has to answer the call and every generation has to build the future of America. And, and our kids are going to do that too in whatever they face. So, you know, it's the spirit of America that excites me and that still, you know, makes my blood get, get, get pumping. Um, but I also recognize everybody's experience is different and we're all in this together. And maybe that's what, what guides me the most is that we're all in this together and we got to look out for each other. Let's take that, that word leadership that you just mentioned here. From leading an infantry rifle platoon to founding and leading an advocacy organization, we met in a thing called Prime Movers Fellowship. You've been recognized and affirmed by a lot of folks for being a leader. So apart from all the issues and all the things that you and I do every day, uh, what does it mean? What will it mean? Now, what will it require for us to be leaders in America today and going forward? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Mm. That, that's what I've learned now that I'm older. I'm 45 now, and I teach leadership a lot. And uh, I think that especially, the, you know, the younger generation, people think leadership is about having a million followers on Instagram or about a corner office or a big paycheck or about power. And it's really not. I think you, you saw that being around President Obama. You've seen it around other leaders, great leaders, um, that, that it's about sacrifice. And the most important leadership role for me right now, and something you've taught me a lot about, Jim, over the years, is, is my role as a father. This is the most important leadership task of my life, the most important leadership challenge of my life, the greatest leadership responsibility of my life. Um, and in many ways, I've even taken a step back from some of the other work I do so I can focus on my boys and, and them. And that requires sacrifice. And I tell them that, you know, it, it's going to require sacrifice. But it's worth it and it's required. And if everybody sacrifices, then everybody sacrifices a little bit less. And so it's that culture of change that we need and why I think that Joe Biden is the person to do it because he knows trauma, he knows pain. This has been a traumatic experience. The Trump administration has been a terribly traumatic experience for our entire, the soul of our country. We need someone who understands trauma, who can help us through trauma and who can take us to the other side and show us that there's hope. And, you know, this guy's lost his children. He's been through tremendous trauma. He understands that. And if he can help us process that trauma uh, and get through the trauma, that might be the single most important thing he does as president. And that's the leadership we need is, is him to demonstrate sacrifice, to put on a mask, you know, to give up things, to encourage us to give up things, to be honest with us. And, and explain to us the sacrifice that will be required, not just even to lead, Jim, but to survive, right? If we're going to survive as the nation we know and love, we must sacrifice right now for the future. And that's what's required. Well, I want to leave it right there. The difference in how we define leadership, success or sacrifice, that is a deeply in our religious traditions, our spiritual lives, and and politics. Who are the people that make a difference? Those who are just successful, and this president defines it entirely as material success almost every day. And yet, sacrifice is what makes leaders 
who they are and what changes the people around them. So there it is, success or sacrifice. What's our definition of leadership? Thank you, my friend, for joining us today. Thank you, my friend. I want to thank you for all of your leadership. You've been a voice and a conscience for this country. And for many like me that were coming up and trying to figure out advocacy and, and, and the social space and politics and public life, you've been an incredible mentor and friend to me and to many others. Uh, and I know you've sacrificed a lot. So I, I want to thank you for that and just tell you I love you and I appreciate you. And I, I hope that uh, you'll be in the Oval Office giving counsel very soon. Well, your voice is more and more important for all of us. And so I give you thanks for offering it to us today. To hear more from Paul Rykoff, follow him on Twitter at Paul Rykoff. Paul, R-I-E-C-K-H-O-F-F, Paul Rykoff. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at Jim Wallace. Blessings. To all of you for the soul of the nation.